All right. You can start turning toward Acts chapter 7. If you also want to turn to Philippians 3, we're going to end up there a bit as well. So Acts 7, Philippians 3. Uh, but we're going to start this morning. I mean, we're still obviously in our kind of canceled series, but um, we're going to start by talking about a young guy who was like canceled. Like we've been talking about how people should have been canceled, but God didn't cancel them and he and he restored them and he redeemed them and he used them. But I kind of want to start by focusing on somebody who, who, who the mob got to, they canceled him and there was no coming back. And not in a, not in a redemptive sense, because he was already redeemed, but in a sense that, that the things that, that kind of inspired this direction, this focus for me, the things that I'm seeing today was, was kind of what played out in this guy's life. Um, so as you're turning to Acts chapter seven, just before that, and if you remember this from our recent series going through the book of Acts, or if you've been with us on Sunday nights reading through Acts recently, uh, you'll remember that there was this, this problem within the church where certain needs weren't being met and the apostles were not equipped to be able to meet all of the needs of the people. The church was just growing too quickly and there was no way for the people to get all of their needs met, all the food distribution, people were getting left out. And so the apostles said, we need some guys to help us out. And they identified uh, seven different guys who were, who were called to kind of help serve in this way. And one of those guys was named Stephen. And, and if you remember Stephen, um, not too long after he was kind of added to this initial group of deacons, if you want to call them that, uh, Stephen found himself in a position where he was talking about the, the truth of who Jesus was and was given the opportunity before a crowd to kind of speak the truth of how God had been working throughout all of creation since the very beginning. You know, starting with the Old Testament and working through all of Israel's history, Stephen's able to kind of stand in front of this crowd and tell them, by the way, you guys are wicked sinners, you guys killed Jesus, and that was the only hope that we had, and he was the hope that we have for salvation, not your your fake righteousness, and, and he, and he kind of lays it all out there. Well, it turns out when you're, you're being kind of surrounded by a mob and you decide instead of, of shying away and running that if you're going to speak this, this truth, and again, it's truth, if you're going to speak this truth to them, they may not respond uh, with a whole lot of like warm, fuzzy feelings and love and you know patience, right? And, and this is what happens in in, in Acts chapter 7, which is where we're about to end up, what we see is he gives this beautiful sermon on, on all of what God has been doing throughout Israel's history. And he paints this beautiful picture of why the church needed Jesus and why Jesus was the right solution and why all that what Jesus was doing was good for them. Even to the point that, that they're getting more and more angry with him. And then he even so confidently looks up and says, I see heaven opening up and Jesus is basically giving me double thumbs up saying, I'm really proud of you. God's saying that I'm doing a good thing right now. And that is what eventually just broke the crowd. It broke them. They're, they're angry. They're, they're, over, they're overwhelmed with rage and frustration that he's saying these things to them, making them feel probably bad about themselves, but they're in, instead of Instead of being repentant, they become indignant. And that's where the focus of our story shifts 
away from Stephen when, we're, when we pick up in Acts chapter 7. So if you haven't had a chance to turn there, you have a few more seconds because I didn't pre, pre-turn to my spot. So Acts chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 57 because this is where the focus is going to begin to shift away from Stephen's story. Stephen, who is being, in a sense, canceled right here, right before us. In Acts chapter 7, verse 57. But they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And so this is where this is where our focus is now going to, to, to switch over to a guy named Saul, who later on is called Paul, in case you weren't sure. But yes, so we're focusing on this guy named Saul, who, who at this moment, when somebody is speaking all of this truth, is standing there, in a sense, overseeing the execution of this person who is crying out the truth of Jesus into a crowd. The laying their garments at his feet, he's basically saying, here, let me hold your coats for you to make it easier for you to get a better wind-up on your stone throw. Right? Let, me, let me kind of make sure everything's well organized here so that you can find, thing, find your things when you get back. So I don't want you to be worried that, that in going to, to kill this man that you're going to lose your cloak. So I'll, I'll keep an eye on that. He's standing there, and it says, again, and Saul approved of his execution. One of the things that we're going to talk about in just a second is Saul is this guy who was well-versed in Israel's history, well-versed in the law. He describes himself, as we're going to read in just a minute, he described himself as a Pharisee, a, 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 a person who knew all of these things. And so, so the fact that, that Stephen had been crying out against the kind of pharisaical practices of the church at this point. He was just as offended and angry as everyone else. And so you have this guy who, who maybe not is, is not actively throwing the stones, but he's standing there making sure that they're, they're easily able to find their mark. And as they're, as they're murdering this man on behalf of the, the body of Christ, like they're, they're murdering him, he's standing there approving. And thus... I think if you were to, to, to have a trial on this whole thing now, you would say that he was complicit or at least an accomplice to the murder of Stephen. But it wasn't just this instance where we see Saul's involvement in, in trying to, to silence the church, to squelch the growth of the church, to hold back what God was building within the church. We started out, we kind of jumped into Acts chapter 8 as I was reading before, but I'm just going to kind of pick up again, kind of halfway into verse 1 of Acts chapter 8, and we're going to see a little bit more. It says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So, there's this movie. There's 
name I can't really say by Quentin Tarantino. It's about a bunch of inglorious guys. I'll just say it that way. Uh, not gonna, it's, it's, a, it's an overly violent kind of sensationalized reimagining of World War II. Um, but there's, it has a couple of the most just tension-filled scenes that I've ever seen in any film. Uh, and in one of these scenes, uh, at the very beginning of the film, uh, there's a German officer sitting in a guy's house, and this German officer uh, is just having a gentle conversation with this man. But eventually you realize that he understands that this man is harboring a whole family, large group of Jews under the floorboards in his house. Um, and he's just having this kind of quiet, gentle conversation. They're talking about smoking pipes. They're talking about all kinds. It's like they're just kind of... But this man who's sitting there having a conversation with him realizes who this, this German officer is. And he knows that he's one of these guys who is, is really efficient at finding the people that he's supposed to persecute, drag off. And he's afraid. The, and, and, and throughout the film, this guy kind of shows back up in different instances. And he just has these kind of relaxed, seeming one-on-one -on -one conversations with other characters. But because of who this guy is, there's this, this tension, this fear that comes into the, the characters that are interacting with him. And I'm telling you this story about this guy who, who won an Academy Award for this role. I mean, he was, he was fantastic at being absolutely terrifying while being absolutely chill and relaxed the whole time. But that's the kind of mentality that the, the, the reputation that they're describing for Saul at this point. Saul has become this guy that when he comes into your town and you're the church, you're filled with fear because that's the guy who gets the job done. That's the guy who comes in and drags people off the chill, drags people off to prison. Men, women, didn't matter. Right? This, and, and I say this because I want you to understand what, what, the, what the perception of Saul would be at this time. Not unlike the German officer that I was talking about uh, from that movie, he's, he's just, just in him, just in knowing that he is there, you're filled with fear, you're filled with tension, you're wondering if he's going to do something to me next. And that's, that's who Saul was. That's the kind of persecution that Saul was overseeing. That's the kind of fear that people would be feeling when he was around, if they were part of the church. It's not just that he was not a good person. It's not just that he was a sinner. It's not just that he did bad things. He was actively fighting against the progress of the growth of the church. Like, if anybody could be described as an enemy of God, if, enemy could, if anybody could be described as fighting hard against the progress. Like, this is, this is as polar opposite as it could get. Dragging off men and women and throwing them in prison. That is who Saul is. We talked about him being a Pharisee. Uh, if you have your place held in Philippians chapter 3, now's the time where I would love uh, for you to flip over there to Philippians chapter 3. And I'm just going to read verses 4 through 6. If I can find it. Chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. He's describing himself. This is later on, looking back at who he was. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, 
I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is how Paul, or, or in this case, right, while we're talking about him, Saul would have viewed himself. He's, he's understanding himself to be 100% correct. You know, that, there's, that whole, there's that whole line, everybody's the kind of the hero of their own story. Like, everybody feels like they're the hero in the, whatever situation they find themselves in, even if, uh, I mean, you, you could say the Germans in World War II felt like they were the good guys to themselves. Uh, they're, 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 throughout history, everyone feels like they're on the side of right for whatever it is they're doing, even if they're not. And so what, what Paul's describing in Philippians is that he's saying, when, when I was out, out persecuting the church, I was doing so from a position where I knew I, I had all my paperwork down. I knew, I knew where, what tribe I came from. I, everything that I was called to do, I was circumcised at the right time. Every, every action that I was called to make, every, every, every piece of the law that I should know and be able to follow, I followed. I was perfect, which is a really confident thing to say. But we're sitting here saying you have this guy who's actively fighting against the growth of the church and feels like he is 100% right, 100% justified in that. That's not somebody who just changes their mind. That seems like something that's hard to come back from. That seems like something that God couldn't use or wouldn't use. He is a persecutor. He is a Pharisee who thinks himself to be perfect. Then how does that guy become one of the great missionaries of the early church? How does that man go from being actively fighting against the growth of the church to seeing some of the most explosive growth of the church happen under his ministry. Well, if you still have your place in Acts, if you just flip over to chapter 9, I just want to read Saul's conversion story um, and then make a couple of points about it. So I'm going to read in Acts chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is the church, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So before I keep going, I just want to make this point, because this is about to be where Saul's going to be converted. He's going to be saved. And oftentimes we talk about this idea of you see people kind of coming around to the idea before they kind of dive all in. And that absolutely happens in some people's lives. But that doesn't mean that God can't still work with somebody who is still 100% actively fighting against him. Because I want you to see Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Like he is, he is still exactly as bad as he's ever been on this day. I don't want you to think that he'd had a couple of interactions and he'd kind of softened to the truth of the gospel. Maybe he was ready to hear it. No, he's still 100% go in the other direction. And I think that's important because I think sometimes there may be people in our lives that we see that are so opposed, so against the gospel that it's easy to give up hope. And, and sometimes we may be called to move on. I'm not saying that that's not going to happen at times. But 
I, I just I want to make this point because he was he was as opposed as opposite to the truth as could be and then we're going to see what happens next I'm picking up in verse 3 now he went on his way as he went on his way he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him Saul Saul why are you persecuting me and he said who are you Lord and he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. So we'll stop right there. Here's the thing. And again, we made the, I made this point. He was, he was still breathing threats against the church. Like, he is so against them. And then he gets knocked off his horse, and he talks to Jesus. Now, there's a word that scripture uses that I think is important for us to talk about. And it's this idea called election. It's this idea that God saves us. It's this idea that God flips this switch in us, and that God changes something within us. And if there was ever a clearer picture of election playing out, and I've said this before when I've taught on this passage, Paul's conversion here is absolutely God changing someone and not somebody having a new inspiration, coming up with a new idea, changing their mind about something. No. His mind is being changed by God here. God is saying, I am going to do something different with you entirely than what you have been doing all along. You are on your way to kill believers, and now I'm going to stop that right now, and I'm going to change everything about you in this moment. And I think that that's a key point that we haven't really touched on yet, when we've talked about all of these different people who have been so awful, just like us, all along the way, is that at some point in their lives, God changes them. God does something to make them different. It's not that they all of a sudden just become good on their own. We don't become good on our own. We become good when the power of God changes our hearts. We become something different someone new when God gives us new understanding, new hopes, new beliefs, new, new motivations. And what we see in, in Acts chapter 9, as we pick up, I'm going to read, pick up in verse 7. It said, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, that's a cool kind of metaphor. We could unpack that, but I'm not going to right now. Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. In this moment, not only did God say, I'm going to do something with you, he's choosing Paul, he's choosing Saul in this moment. He's also humbling Saul in this moment. Right? What is it we just read? That Saul thought of himself as blameless, as perfect, as everything that every, every Israelite should, should want to become. That's who he thought he was. And in this moment, God humbles him and he says, man, you are nothing. Let me show you how much power you actually have. And he, and, and he goes from being a guy who's riding in on a horse and people are afraid of, to having to be led into town by the guys who work with him because he can't see anymore. And it says he sat there unable to see, not eating, not drinking, just, just weakened, broken by God for three days. 
over time, he, his name, they start calling him Paul. And, you know, we tend to think, because we did this, we talked about this when we talked about uh, Jacob and being renamed Israel. We think of this whole idea of it being a big deal when somebody's name gets changed, right? Somebody's name gets changed, so the meaning changes, all of these things. That doesn't really happen with Paul's story. In fact, it's kind of a little side note. There's a point uh, kind of midway through Acts where Luke, who was writing the book of Acts, says, and Saul, who was also called Paul, went to this place. And then for the rest of the book, he calls him Paul. That's the story. That's how Paul's name got changed. And, and I was looking into those, I was like, what, why is there, is there still any significance to that? And apparently, it's really, they mean about the same thing. Which, which in case you're wondering, Paul can mean something like small. Thanks, Mom and Dad. That's my middle name. But if you think about what just happened, he went from riding on his high horse, literally, to getting knocked off and being humbled. And he goes by this name that means small. The big difference between Saul and Paul is that Paul is apparently a lot more familiar name to those who were Gentiles. So in a sense, kind of like we, we've talked about it different ways. We've been reading with us on Sunday nights. We talked about um, Paul kind of contextualizing his ministry to different people as he was going into different cities. But like the significance is he, he's changing his identity a little bit by going by a different name, but more than anything, now he's not identifying as hard with his Hebrew roots as he is with the people that he's wanting to minister to, which is so it may not be so significant that he has a new name in the same sense that we talk about like Jacob and Israel or Jesus calling Simon Peter or something like that. But what we see is it, it, it reflects the 180 degree shift in his life, the way that he has changed from being a totally against the church, riding on his high horse, literally and figuratively thinking that he's perfect to now he's this humbled man who has seen that the power of God is way more than he can handle and is willing to follow God and pursue God and take his name and build his church wherever it is that God would call him. That's a, that's a shocking difference that's not necessarily a huge deal in that name change, but there's a lot that I think we can pull out from that that implies a lot of who Paul became and how important that was. And the last thing I want to talk about specifically with what kind of changed within Paul is to look at the way his attitude shifted away from thinking that he was the stuff, that he was the guy, he was the dude, he was the man who, who was perfect and blameless. So if you still have your place in Philippians chapter 3, what's interesting about those verses that I read is those are just kind of an aside taken a little bit out of context. He's kind of describing how he used to feel. But when you read the rest of the verses, it completely changes what he's trying to say in there. So I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 3. Now I'm going to read verses 3 through 9. Paul says, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's a stark difference from what he was saying. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But... 
Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's a big difference. Right? That last verse says it all. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's exactly who, who Saul was. Someone who thought, I am righteous because of the law that I understand perfectly and practice better than anyone else. I understand this law so well that I'm going to go out and murder people. Irony in that, by the way, given that the law says don't go out and murder people. But, but that's who he say, I was that, and I was wrong. But I wouldn't have known that I was wrong were it not for the righteousness of God that came to me. A righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God. This, this new identity that God has given to him. And I think it's important for us to look at, as we talk through all of these different kind of stories of how people are being transformed and reshaped and taken from being, being awful people, just like us, and made into these new clean vessels that God is using for all sorts of amazing, powerful things. And all of this is because, and you, and you may be saying, so what do I have to do to get to that point? And I mean, yes, believe in Jesus and all those things, but, but the work is done, right? The work that Jesus has done has already accomplished all of that. And it's the grace that he gives to us when he, when he chooses us, when he, when, he, when he bestows his grace upon us, when he changes us, when he, when he knocks us off the horse that we're riding on. Now, now, that may not have been your experience when you were saved. You may not have been riding a horse. Was it, oh, well, I'm going to ask. Was anybody riding a horse the moment they were getting, the moment that God revealed himself to them? No, okay, I didn't think so. But if you did, I wanted to hear the story because that would have been awesome. Sorry, now I'm thinking about that. This is how I get distracted. That's not all of our experiences. We don't all share that, ex that experience with Saul. This idea of, I'm off fighting against God, and then God dramatically shifted me in that one moment. That may not be your story. It may be that God was working on you over a long period of time. But it also may be that you came to some realization all of a sudden in a moment, oh my goodness, this is what I've been doing, and I'm wrong, and God changed your understanding of who you were all in that moment or somewhere in between we all have a different story but all of those stories share the same thing that God was the one who was changing us and that's why I think it's so important as we look through this this whole this whole look through the Bible at all these people that God has changed and realize that it's God who is changing all of these people which is why we're not done with them which is why we still have hope for the future of our society even now. 
Because we can believe that God is still perfectly capable of changing hearts and saving people and growing his church even today. There's a lot in our society right now that makes me think we're not coming back from this. It's easy to fall into that kind of despair. But the more and more we look at this, the more and more we see that there are lots of people that seem so awful, just like us, that God is not done with. And that God can take even the worst, even the proudest, even the most actively fighting against him, and he can turn them into some of the greatest missionaries that the church has ever seen. What does that mean for the people that you're thinking through in your life that are so opposed to the gospel even now? Or what does that say about us when we're, when we're met with opposition and instead of peacefully engaging with opposition, we, we unfollow or block or hide or whatever? Because I'll be honest, I'm, I, do, I get tempted to do that all the time. I just don't want to hear other things because I get exhausted by it. It's exhausting, right? How exhausting do you think we seem to God sometimes? Right? But yet, we continue to see that he takes even those of us who are awful to deal with sometimes, and he continues to use us. He continues to build his church through people that he is actively saving. And so how does that affect our attitude as the church, as, as the people of God? How does that affect the way that we minister? Well, A, I think it means that we can be extra patient with people. I think, some, like I said, sometimes, I mean, Jesus told his disciples, sometimes you have to shake the dust off your feet and move on. Like, I'm not saying there aren't going to be times that God doesn't say, you will be more effective ministering over here and, and not, not just kind of spinning your wheels working in this area. But just because God calls you away from a particular area of ministry doesn't mean that he can't or won't continue to work or save somebody that you're leaving behind. It may just be that you weren't the one he was going to use in that moment. Or he's going to shine a bright light on their face and knock them off a horse. Who knows? But we as the church, hopefully understanding that God is perfectly capable of saving anybody, should not be done with anybody. We shouldn't, we shouldn't set aside that person has no hope for salvation. But that also means that we don't have to, we, we can confidently stay on topic. Like we don't have to feel like we have to change anything about ourselves or change anything about the gospel to try to win them. We can be confident in the truth that this book gives us to present to them as a means of explaining the gospel. And then we can trust that God will do the work. And that's, I think, one of the more important things for us to learn as the church. For those who are not saved, what does, what, does this, what does this mean? It means that no matter how much you feel that you have been fighting against the gospel, fighting against God, doing everything you can to try to get as far away from him as you can, that that doesn't mean that there is no hope for you. That doesn't mean that that you are of no use to the church, or that the church ought to ignore you, cast you out, and never have anything to do with you ever again. No, quite the opposite. It means that God is still absolutely able to save you. We see that in Paul's life. And that's what I want those who are unsaved to understand as well. And I want those of us who are in the church to be ready and willing to help continue to reinforce this idea that, that the gospel is powerful enough to save even the worst people.
because we're all the worst people. Because sin is sin is sin. It's, it's you're holy like God or you're not, and we aren't. But that God changes us, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, made us, made us. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't make ourselves. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the gospel. That's the, that's, that's the message that we have. And that's why the farther and farther into this I've gotten, the more and more excited I've gotten just about the way that God works in our lives, the way that he changes us. Because I think at this point we've seen this whole spectrum of people who are, who are fighting either against God, resistant to God, or are selfish or are sinners in all sorts of different ways. Hopefully you have, you have connected with at least one of them or more of them at some point and said, that is, I can see that in me, or I can see that temptation in me. Because, because next week we're going to wrap this up in a little bit of a different way. But I want us to I want us to see all of these things and not become bogged down saying, man, I'm just like all these awful people, but instead say, man, I'm just like all these awful people that God has done amazing things through. And I'm ready to tell people about the amazing things that God has done. Because that's the beauty of being a part of the, of the church, is that we have this truth now, that we, that we have this shared experience of salvation that we have to tell anyone and everyone who will listen about the joys of knowing Jesus.